When Corey Asbury's reckless love hit the airwaves and began landing on church worship sets across the country, debates raged across the internet, ranging from, is reckless an appropriate word to describe God's love, to, is this song blasphemous? A new song by Judah has just released that describes God's love as irresponsible, which has raised more questions about language in our worship songs. Today, we'll discuss these songs, language in all of our worship songs, and even what technically qualifies as a worship song for church services. Are you ready? It's time to wake up. It's a new day. Yes, it is. Wakey, wakey. Time to get up. Good morning, citizens. Open up them. Rise and shine. This is your wake up call, people. Come on, the coffee's on. We're going to get you guys circulating on Christian radio. I understand young people. I know what's hip. I know what's on. I know what's lit. I know what's fleet. What's up, my nerds? Nerds! I work with a bunch of nerds. I'm a nerd. And, uh... I'm pretty proud of it. Rise and shine, nerds. Welcome to the Back Row Morning Show, a part of the Love Thy Nerd podcast network and the official exclusive morning show for LTN Radio. I'm Radio Matt, the station manager and chief radio nerd. I'm a husband, the father of three, including a newborn baby girl, a Green Lantern fan, and a Funko Pop collector. And I'm Mo, shorter, louder, smarter, and all around better than absolutely no one. I'm a wife, mom, elementary librarian, and seeker of truth, except when it comes to reality TV. The Back Row Morning Show covers a wide range of topics, and we usually take it in threes, three segments focusing on different aspects of our discussion. This week, we're talking about the language in our worship music. It's something that we might not focus on enough, but it also might be causing an uproar with some people when it shouldn't. But before we jump into our discussion, remember that Sunday School Answers, the Nerd Deck, is now available at MacroGames.com. It's a double expansion to the core game with 20 new dilemmas and 85 new answers, most of which were written by members of the Love Thy Nerd community. That's right. If you're a gamer, tabletop player, comic book lover, Whovian, Jedi, otaku, or a geek of any other inclination, the Nerd Deck is for you. You can pick up Sunday School Answers, the Nerd Deck, and all of our expansions at backrowgames.com. We have the Meme Deck, the Superhero Deck, the Food Deck, with over a year's worth of expansions planned out already, and our next expansion comes out this month, and we have announced it on our social media already, so go check it out. So, the band Judah and the Lion got their start as a worship band. And as time went on, they moved to more standard music, even making it mainstream uh, with many of their hit songs, such as uh, Take It Back. Um, there's one that's got, like, the Atlanta Braves chant in it. The, oh, 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 oh that thing. Let's go. That's what it's called. Let's go. And it's been used on like a lot of sports commercials and things of that nature. Um, but last year, during during the during the pandemic, which I guess we're still in technically, but during the height of the pandemic, Judah, the lead singer, uh, has taken to solo singles and EPs that are more in line with worship. They're still like original songs, and they're still a little bit more. Uh, um, I guess a little less church playable. I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce that, how to, how to uh, 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 convey more, this. A little more secular. Not. I mean, still not quite secular. Just more. That's why I said a little more secular. Well, that's still not what I mean. Oh. More, more rhythmic. More. Oh. More radio esque so as opposed okay. to church esque. But no. there's still. 
worship minded. It's still usually talking to God. It's still that kind of thing. Uh, his most recent one is called Irresponsible. Did you happen to listen to this? More concert, less church. Yeah. Okay. Did you, you listen go. to this? Yeah, I did. Yeah. What'd mm -hmm. you think of it? I loved it. Okay. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's a song that uses this word it's, it, to describe God's love. It beautifully portrays a God who chases us, doesn't stop revealing himself, refuses to be separated from us, but it uses the word irresponsible, uh, which has a familiar tone to it because we just have spent the last, uh, what, three, four years arguing over whether or not reckless is an okay term to describe mm -hmm. God's love. Yeah. And it's sparked a renewed discussion as to words like these and if they're appropriate uh, in songs of this nature. Mm -hmm. So uh, this week we're going to examine uh, first this word, there are these two words, and then kind of like all words and then all worship songs, we're going to go deep. But today we're going to focus on these. So let me read you the lyrics to the chorus here. Okay. Uh, well, actually, I'll read you the first verse. I was trying course. to look them up, and I can't find them. Yeah, I got them here. I got them. Okay. Uh, so the the verse starts off. This is, I mean, this is very kind of just a, a straight conversation with God. Like the first words are, "I just want to say," like, okay, it's it's not a it's not a deep theological prayer. But he says, "I just want to say, I'm hopeless without you. I've searched far and wide to find that it doesn't get any better than this. I just want to say that I'm sorry for running in circles with my sin and shame when you told me to run to your love." And then the chorus, and I just want to say that I'm grateful for all of the ways you've never left me behind. Oh, how irresponsible your love. And I just want to praise your name for all of the ways you keep chasing my heart. Oh, how irresponsible your love. Let's just keep going. Verse two, and I don't know why I'm inclined to run and hide. I build mountains in my mind so high to find they never stood a chance to your love. My highest heights were never enough. From heaven to hell, might as well just give up. Where could I go that you won't? Where could I run that you don't? None of my lows are too low for how deep that you'll go. Course again. And then, uh, there's a whole rap. This is, I mean, this is what makes it makes it not a church song. Right. There's a whole rap yeah. with Jay Monty comes in with the whole rap, still in a similar tone. I'm not going to read the whole rap because it's long. But I mean, that's, you I mean, you get it. Mm hmm. You get the tone. But even for people that like reckless love, that word irresponsible jumps out at you because it's not a common word that we associate with. God's love. It's not something that we typically would think to use if we were writing a worship song of this manner. And so people can hear that and be off put automatically just because this word typically has a negative connotation. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's where we're starting off. So to carry on in this conversation, there was an article that came out back when Reckless Love came out in Relevant Magazine titled, No, Corey Asbury's Reckless Love Isn't Heretical, But Could Have Gone Further. And here's what, what, uh, what they described in the song, or in the, in the article. This was by, let me see if I can find the author, Andre Henry, okay? He said... Uh, I'm sorry. Let me find the right place. <laughs> he said that searching for the meaning of reckless, uh, 
Google tells me that reckless describes someone who acts without thinking or caring about the consequences of an action. Uh, and even searching more respectable Merriam-Webster's dictionary, similarly, it defines reckless as marked by lack of proper caution, careless of consequences, and even as irresponsible. So without even knowing it, back in 2018, they were tying into our conversation today. Bum, bum, bum. And uh, the article doesn't say, I don't think too many Christians would like to say that God is careless or that God's love doesn't care about consequences. Instead, God loves us with clear and thoughtful intention. Um, however, it's, it's, it's very important to make it explicit that we're talking about God's love and not God's identity. Right. Not God himself. Right. No one, no one is saying that God is reckless. We're saying that it is a way that God loves that is, is reckless or irresponsible in human terms. Exactly. If it were viewed through the lens of human perspective, it would be considered mm-hmm. reckless. If the things that God does for us are things that we would do, you know, if, if my son chased after a girl who has failed him over and over and over again, that's not something that I would encourage him to keep doing. I would tell him, your heart is getting broken. Why are you doing this? In that way, it's irresponsible. It's reckless. Mm -hmm. So when we view God's love for us in terms that we as humans love, reckless and irresponsible would be terms that would fit. Absolutely. Like the same kind of example you're using. If we're talking about any kind of human uh, who, like I I would think of it more of a self-deprecating person, of putting myself in the person as the person who has failed in a relationship Mm -hmm. uh, as I am. And, there was there was a time in our marriage where uh, I would have completely understood and my wife just left and she would have been well within her rights to do so because I was a bad husband at the beginning. And her staying and her continuing to to make this marriage work, to not give up on me just because I made a I made a, a screw up. That was irresponsible and reckless mm-hmm. in the eyes of so many other people. Mm-hmm. So many people who weren't in on the situation, who didn't know everything that happened. Anybody just looking from the outside would say that was irresponsible, that was reckless. But ultimately, it was such a great thing because it built us both into a much stronger couple. And... It's that kind of reckless love that God gives. Because just like we talked about last week, last week we talked about God's righteous anger compared to human righteous anger Mm -hmm. and how God sees the entirety of it. Right. God can, can truly react in righteous anger because he knows the past and the future and every bit of information surrounding the situation and the person He can see it all. 
And so from his perspective, no, it's not reckless. It's not uh, uh, irresponsible. It's intentional. But from our perspective, when we are crying out to God in our pain and in our sin and in our shame, we know that we feel like we don't deserve it. Mm-hmm. And we know that we don't. <laughs> that, more to the point. We know that we don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve any of these blessings. We are given them by God who mm-hmm. loves us because he loves us. And he loves us recklessly and irresponsibly enough to give us that love even when we aren't reciprocating, even when we aren't living our best, even when we run from him mm-hmm. and run from that love. So, of course, from a human perspective, which is what a worship song is, and we'll kind of talk about this later in the in the uh, the week, but you know, a worship song is a song that is a prayer to God. This isn't the song that the angels sing in the heavens, you know, where they've been basking in the glory of God from all eternity and, you know, live from that side of, of reality. This is us imperfect people, undeserving, unrighteous, scum of the earth, knowing that we don't deserve it and saying how grateful we are mm-hmm. that God is reckless enough to continue to love us. Mm-hmm. Even in our sin and shame. Yeah. I think by using words like those, um, using words that have such a negative meaning, if you will, a negative connotation, that is true worship because we are acknowledging the fact that we suck. (laughs) You know? Yeah. You should have left me, God, a long time ago. You would have been well within your rights. (laughs) You should have walked away. You know what I mean? But you didn't, and that's what makes you different. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, In this article, it continues on, those bothered by reckless as an adjective for God seems to take the word out of context. We live in a cultural moment and have been for some time where worship songs appropriate destructive imagery and negative language to talk about God. Note, the many songs where God is invoked by the worshiper to set various things on fire. The singer, the soul, our hearts, this place, whatever that is. These songs are not meant to be theological statements about God's real proclivity towards arson or lack thereof. Furthermore, Asbury rose to prominence in a worship context that is famous for using dramatic language that turns traditional meanings on their heads. Uh, he came through the, the IHOP, the International House of Prayer. Uh, litur- liturgical vernacular uh, is full of sarcastic language. And by sarcastic, I mean that it is a regular practice for their worship songs to take words with conventionally negative connotations and use them in a positive way. For instance, uh, Misty Edwards, I will waste my life. Wasting your life is not a good thing, but it's being used in a different way to describe a life given to contemplative prayer, contemplative prayer. Uh, Asbury might not be in uh, the IHOP anymore, uh, but that has clearly been a context that shaped his songwriting and art. And I would say Judah in the same manner. He never went to the IHOP that I'm aware of, uh, but he's doing the exact same thing, taking a word that has a negative connotation and flipping it on its ear to give it new meaning, Mm -hmm. new positive meaning. The context, uh, in the context of our cultural moment and the song itself, recklessness and irresponsibility are being used as virtues rather than character flaws. So then the question becomes, do we have the license to use language in this way? 
what gives us the right? Uh, in one of Paul's letters to the Corinthians, the apostle speaks of the gospel as foolishness. Now, Paul doesn't think that the gospel is foolish. He literally gave his life to spread it. So we're going to say that he couldn't have meant that it was foolish, but he knew it sounded like foolishness to some. So Paul plays around with the words for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. He's not really asserting that God is foolish or God is weak. He is saying that in comparison, even if God were to have a foolish nature or a weak nature, it would still be so far above our best that there would be no comparison. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's getting creative with language. Paul took words with a conventionally negative connotation and subverted those cultural associations by using them in a different way. The same way these two songs are doing with these two words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's all I got. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, I do understand uh, there is the argument that if, if we're going to say that somebody has, is, is giving an action in one way, then that must also describe the person. For instance, uh, you know, if, if someone uh, lies, he's a liar. So if someone is reckless, then they're reckless. You know, so there, there are some people that tend to associate, well, if we're going to associate that term with one aspect of God, then just by natural connotation, we're, we're attributing it to God as a whole. So if someone is listing a bunch of things that God does, describing them as reckless, they're implying God is reckless. Mm -hmm. So I understand that. And, uh, I can see, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I can, get it. Yeah. I can see the, um, I can understand why some people would get awkward, uneasy, right. why their insides would be turned upside down. Okay. I get it. Yeah. I do. Um, however, it's those situations when I start to feel like that, that I go, okay, but wait a minute, why am I feeling like this? Mm. And I really question it. I search those feelings, you know, because I, I truly believe that it's in those feelings that, um, God can either change us, grow us, strengthen us, or that the devil can use those situations to create walls around us Yeah, to block us off from the people within our lives who may need us or who we may need. Yeah. You know, so quick story. Okay. Several years ago we were, it was a Wednesday night and I was driving home from church. Um, and you'll remember this night, um, couple lights down, just a couple lights away from my home, actually. Um, the light had turned green and as I am accelerating to go through, I notice that there is a SUV who is in the turn left lane. So they have to yield to oncoming traffic before they can turn left but they're not yielding. And at this point, there's nothing that I can do other than acknowledge the fact that we're about to get into a wreck. Mm. And 
in that moment, I veered, pulled the steering wheel hard to the right, which caused all the impact to go to the driver's side. I'm the one driving. Why on earth would you do that? That makes zero sense. My 10-year-old at the time was in the front seat. Mm. And my five-year-old was in the passenger's back seat directly behind her brother. Had I not veered and taken the impact on my side, it's very likely that at least one of my children, if not both, would have been critically injured. The car was completely totaled. I got a steering wheel burn or the airbag burn from the steering wheel. The glass on my side, both windshield and window, completely shattered. Several cuts along my arm. Both of my kids were totally fine. Yeah. Absolutely nothing wrong. To anyone who was around who didn't know that my kids were in the car, like I said, veering myself, pulling that steering wheel as hard as I could to the right and taking that impact on my end could have been reckless. Mm -hmm. It would have been irresponsible. Anybody would have said, what was she thinking? Mm -hmm. Why did she do that? But because of my love for my kids, that's why I did that. Yeah. So when you consider that love can be reckless and love can be irresponsible and of course God is love. So yeah, there are going to be times where to us, when we receive his love at times when we know we don't deserve it, it's going to seem like nothing short of reckless and irresponsible, whether he had a plan or not. I had a plan to keep my kids safe, whether to everyone else it was reckless or irresponsible. It's the same. Yeah. I mean, even, even tying back to scripture, when God sent his son to earth, they knew exactly how that story was going to end. God didn't have to send Jesus. Jesus didn't have to come to earth. Right. Didn't have to go through all that torture, be crucified, die for the entire sins of humanity. Is that not reckless <laughs> to be sent somewhere that you know you'll be tortured and killed in such a brutal manner? Of course that's reckless. That's intentionally putting yourself in harm. That's like the definition of reckless. But it's that love that overpowers it, that makes it not just reckless, but a, a necessity of recklessness. Like mm -hmm. it had to be reckless. Mm -hmm. It had to be irresponsible to the person of Jesus. He had to push those ideas and, and, and connotations aside and do the reckless, irresponsible thing and let himself be taken captive, let himself be flogged, let himself be hung on a cross to fulfill the prophecies that had been laid out in the Old Testament to save humanity. 
for all time. Like, what is the definition of reckless again? Read it. Mm-hmm. It's not stupid. It's not like the, it's not an, an insult when you really get down to the core of it. It comes to intention, just like most story. Even if people knew your kids were in the car looking from the outside, what you did was reckless and irresponsible to yourself, mm-hmm. but it was on purpose. Right. It was for a purpose. Recklessness and irresponsibility can have a purpose when it is overridden or the necessity for it overrides what could happen without it. Whoops. Mm-hmm. Thanks. And mm-hmm. so just, yeah. I mean, I'll, I, I admit I had a hard time with reckless love. I had a hard time getting past my preconceived notions of whether or not this was an okay song to listen to, to sing along with. And I hadn't had to experience it really. We'd heard it a couple times on the radio but uh, then we went to a Celebrate Recovery Summit, and it was like the first worship song of the entire thing, and I did not sing along with it. I was very uncomfortable. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I can't do it. I can't do it. And I really had to think about why. <laughs> like, what was standing in my way? There, was, there are thousands of people in this room who seemed to have no problem with this word. And so it made me think, well, am I misinterpreting what's going on here? And I came to the conclusion I definitely was. And it was this article that I actually read way back then that explained it to me and made so much sense. And so now that I get to experience uh, Judah's irresponsible as it comes out, and I already have this new mindset around words like this. I saw it immediately for the beauty that it was. I have listened to it dozens of times in the last week since I first heard it. Uh, it's a fantastic song. It's a heart-wrenching song. Mm-hmm. It's one that really, really connects with me and I'm sure would connect with a lot of us. And it's because I dropped my weird obsession with <laughs> correcting people's language. <laughs> That I'm able to understand what it's really trying to say mm-hmm. and the tone that it's really trying to take. Of course, we're not saying that God himself is irresponsible. We are saying that he exhibits a love that is so beyond our comprehension that to us, it seems irresponsible mm-hmm. because we don't deserve it. But he sees all. He understands all. And he also understands our intentions when we're singing the song. Okay. Okay, okay. If you're singing a song with the right intention, even if you disagree with the word that's chosen, he understands what you're saying. He's not just reading back some stenographer's transcript trying to to interpret what you meant. He knows what you're singing. But that's part of another discussion that we're going to have. Is it just about what your heart intends? There's more to it. When we come back, we're going to examine the words of worship we've become accustomed to. This week in Nerdy News, this is LTNN. 
A new set of photos for the upcoming Disney Plus exclusive movie, Muppets Haunted Mansion, was released last week by Entertainment Weekly. One photo features Miss Piggy dressed up as Kermit, and Kermit dressed up as Miss Piggy, so I guess that toxic relationship is still a thing. Marvel's new animated MCU series, What If, premiered last Wednesday with an episode featuring one slight change to the original Captain America movie story that rippled out into an entirely different outcome, where Peggy Carter became the super soldier instead of Steve Rogers. A second promotional poster has been released showcasing a zombie apocalypse Avengers situation. Oh boy, forget shawarma. We're eating brains tonight. And lastly, the first official trailer for Why the Last Man was released last week, showing the day that all men die except for one, Yorick Brown. This story follows an extremely popular comic series where the world's women find themselves struggling to rebuild and find the answers around the sudden immediate death of all men on Earth. We're going to call it right now, though. It's probably not going to give you the warm fuzzies that you think it would. That was This Week in Nerdy News. I'm Radio Matt, and this is LTNN. Hey, everyone. I'm Brittany Laughland, and this is Reviews of the Nerds. Today, I'm reviewing the Disney Plus series, Loki. Loki is the latest series in the MCU's string of successful Disney Plus shows, following The Falcon and the Winter Soldier and WandaVision, respectively. The series picks up right where we last saw Loki in Avengers Endgame, after he steals the Tesseract back again and disappears into space and time from 2012 New York. The first episode wonderfully sets the tone for the rest of the six-episode series, and I have to admit, it has become my favorite thing the MCU has ever produced. Throughout the miniseries, we see Loki being forced to confront the atrocities he's committed, but more importantly, he's forced to confront himself. We see this first by him being interrogated in episode 1 by Mobius, played brilliantly by Owen Wilson, a top agent for the Time Variance Authority, a police-type task force tasked with upholding the sacred timeline created by the mysterious timekeepers. He then continues to self-reflect when he meets Sylvie, played by the amazing Sofia DiMartino in episode 2, a female variant of himself. What follows is a series of timey-wimey twists, turns, and unfortunate events. The heart and soul of Loki is the many conversations and emotional moments the characters have with each other. It was heartwarming to see Loki develop a friendship and camaraderie with Mobius, and breathtaking to see him and Sylvie fall into a delicately beautiful love for one another for the first time in their lonely lives. But most of all, we get to see Loki grow and develop, and by the end, become someone whom we can call a hero. While the time-traveling, various Lokis, and ultimate introduction to the multiverse at the conclusion of this series is the fascinating plot, it's all the moments that Loki has with everyone, from Hunter B-15 to Sylvie to Jonathan Major's eccentric He Who Remains that really drew me in and kept me coming back for more. And while the series ends on a bleak cliffhanger, we have season two to look forward to to hopefully wrap up the loose threads we were left with. Director Kate Herron and head writer Michael Waldron, along with extensive input from Tom Hiddleston, who served as an executive producer for the series, have together created something smart, funny, and beautifully emotional. I give this series Loki a 9.5 out of 10 stars. Be sure to check out the behind-the-scenes documentary episode on Marvel's Assembled on Disney Plus, too. You really feel the love the creative team put into the show. I'm Brittany Laughlin, and remember, be sure to tell your loved ones you love them. For all time, 
always. back to the Back Row Morning Show. I'm Radio Matt. And I'm Mo. And every week, these three main segments get spread out across three daily morning shows on LTN Radio, and they include a lot more content, including weird news, random facts, games, challenges, rants, discord arguments, junk food, and more. And you can be a part of all that by following us on Twitch at twitch.tv slash LTN on air, so you'll be notified when we go live. You can even be a part of the show. And make sure you catch our full morning shows every Monday through Thursday on LTN LTNonair.com at 8 a.m. Eastern with an encore at 10. So we started by discussing two songs, one brand new, one a few years old, both using words that many find troubling, but some find them understandable and even accurate. But the discussion at its heart is a larger one. Do the words we use in worship songs really matter? Today we're going to discuss three issues that have arisen in recent worship worship culture and why they could be problematic. Now, this is a list that comes from uh, a blog by a name called, uh, or by a name, by a person named, by a name called Glenn Packiam. Uh, the, the title is, Do the Words We Use in Worship and Prayer Really Matter? Uh, and he has three things that he brings up that he wants to talk about. So we're going to kind of read through them. I'm not going to read the whole article, but we're going to read the gist of these three things and then give our thoughts. Okay. Whether we agree or disagree. Okay, cool. Okay. So first off, the phrase, it's the heart that counts. His response is, tell that to Nadab and Abihu, uh, the guys who offered a strange fire and got struck down in Numbers 3. Or Uzzah, the guy who, who was struck dead for touching the ark that was sliding off a cart it should have never been on because David did not ask or did not seek the Lord about the prescribed manner that the cart should be or the ark should be uh, transported. Where did it arrive? Uh, dang it, I'm sorry, I can't read. Where did we arrive at the notion that God does not care about the way that we worship or that all that matters is our heart? What only adds to the middle of uh, the muddle. Gosh, I really can't read. I apologize. Let me gather myself. What only adds to the muddle is the confused notion about what the heart is. We have been shaped by the romantic era so that when we hear heart, we think intention or desire. But in the scripture, the heart is the seat of the will. It is where action comes from. So the real question should be, are you sure that your words and your heart are two separate things? Can you sing bad words but have a good heart? Jesus seemed quite clear that our words always betray what's in our hearts. Perhaps our words in worship reveal what we really believe about God in our hearts. It's the conviction that uh, the way we worship is the way we believe is the way we live. It's not a... Uh, just a clever Latin phrase from a long time ago, lex orandi, lex credenti, lex vivendi. Uh, it's, an, it, it's not an accident that along with the rise of popular worship songs devoid of the words and content of the creeds and confessions of the church has come a rise of, an, of kind of a new religion, a, mor- a moralistic therapeutic deism uh, that many think is Christianity. So have our words of prayer and worship become so generic that most of what we sing can be just as easily sung to Simba the Lion King or Oprah's God. The Bible also tells us that our heart is desperately wicked. Scripture and the historic creeds and confessions of the church 
uh, that are, were either based on scripture or were themselves the basis uh, for selecting the canon of scripture are like iron stakes driven into the ground on either side of a young tree. Without them, our worship grows crooked. So that's his thoughts. Your initial thoughts to that. Mm, my initial thoughts to that, I'm really trying not to be critical. <laughs> um, but I will say it probably would do him a little bit of good to look up the Bible Project's word study on the heart and actually um, learn what heart meant in biblical times. Sure. Well, I mean, I don't think he's necessarily wrong in, in what he's talking about, because the I Bible does say that the heart is... Okay, but what I'm saying is... Desperately wicked. Yes, but here's the thing. In those times when it was written, the heart... <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm Lay not it gonna do it justice. Go. I'm not Got gonna it. do it justice. So I'm just gonna say, please look it up so that you can go back and you can understand truly what I'm what I'm getting at. It's the Bible Project word study on heart. But anyway, in those times, it's believed that heart. A lot of times, they're actually talking about your brain, not necessarily what we know as our heart mm. today. Um especially in the verse that our heart is wicked because in that case, it's talking about our actions and the things that we do and the decisions that we make. And so in that way, it's in reference to our brain, not actually our heart. And what we have turned it into mean is something totally different than what it would have meant in biblical times when you do word studies and connect all the dots and put the pieces together. So in that way, um, we can take a lot of scripture and twist it and fit it together like puzzle pieces. When in all actuality, those two pieces come from two different puzzles. Hmm. Okay. Does that make sense? I get it. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying he's completely wrong. Right. I'm so just I, saying it probably would have done him a little bit of good <laughs> to do uh, uh, some research on. Okay. Well, let's say we're even using that then. Okay. And saying we're thinking of it in that manner. Are we still able to say it's the heart that counts if we're thinking of the heart in that wise as really our brain decision making and all that? If it's just what we're thinking and what we're feeling, does that override anything that we're saying? Um, cause we talked about this yesterday or well, I mean, we talked about it with the reckless and the irresponsible and how the words have negative connotations, but we also talk about how that's a common thing right now in many worship songs where they take words that seem to have negative or destructive connotations and kind of twist their, their meaning into something different and something, uh, more, you know, descriptive of God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So there's going to be a lot of times I think, and I mean, we prove this on a regular basis where words just aren't enough. Mm. No matter what you say, no matter how big your vocabulary is, how expansive your vocabulary is, there are going to be times where you just can't 
put your finger on the right word to describe the situation or to describe your feeling. And so there are going to be times where you're going to say something, you're going to describe something, whatever, and to everyone else, it's going to seem like the wrong word. It's going to seem like you said the wrong thing. Whereas to God, because he does know all and see all and understand all, that's where his grace covers. And quite honestly, I'm incredibly thankful for it. <laughs> it's something that I pray every single night when I'm praying for my children, that I'm thankful for his grace. That's going to cover a multitude of sins because I sin and I fall short in parenting specifically every day. Yeah. And I could beat myself up over the mistakes that I make and the poor choice of words that I use. Or I could trust and understand that, you know what, God, God saw it. God got it. He knows my heart. He knows the intent of where I'm coming from. And he's going to cover that in grace. I think that's the, the, the exact right thought process for this, because the examples that he gave uh, of, of things that had happened in the, in the past that God had basically struck people down for were Old Testament situations. Mm -hmm. They were before Jesus entered the picture, before grace entered the picture in the human world. Mm -hmm. uh, and things did ultimately change. When, when we get to, to this discussion, the way he's describing it, I feel like it, it, it really quickly gets into legalism yeah. territory, mm -hmm. where it's like, well, you better not only know what you need to do, but do it exactly right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that Jesus saved us from, mm -hmm. having to get everything exactly right, because he knows that we can't. Right. When I think about people that are, are so focused on the words that we use, as opposed to the, the intention behind them, I immediately think about Celebrate Recovery mm -hmm. and how I've heard so many testimonies where the person accidentally slips up and says a cuss word in church. From the pulpit. From the pulpit. Yeah. Talking about Jesus. But the story in and of itself is still a story of redemption, of them coming out of a lifestyle that was so devoid of hope and grace and Jesus's love without salvation in their heart, without recovery. And this was their story about how God brought them out of that and is still working on them. And if we had to like stop the presses, usher that guy out of the building because he let the S word slip while sharing his heart, sharing his testimony, sharing what God has done for him, then we're missing it. <laughs> Now we talked about that too when we talked about um, like Christian artists that have chosen to cuss in music, and how we we kind of discussed how there's really kind of two situations. There's if it's a raw expression of real emotion and pain and hurt, or if it's just used as a a means for shock and awe or recklessly, mm -hmm. uh, and not the good recklessly. <laughs> Uh, for instance, I know there's a Christian rapper. I don't remember his name at the moment, uh, but there's, he's, he's, he's good. Um, uh, I mean, 
technically, I guess Chance the Rapper would fall into this too, but he, he doesn't present himself necessarily as a Christian rapper. He's a rapper who believes a lot of who Christian things, but, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but there is a rapper who just kind of doesn't care. Uh, and he's friends with, uh, rapper Nick D who we have on the station a lot. And, and he's even featured him in one of his songs, which we don't play on the station. Uh, and I, I believe he uses the cuss words just incorrectly. He uses them for, for fun and for, for shock value. And, uh, to say he's the cussing Christian rapper, and I don't like that. Yeah. But when P.O.D. used a bleeped out version of the F word in one of their songs where it was literally the story of a person so broken down and so disillusioned by humanity that they couldn't believe there was a God, and yet at the end of the song comes the realization that he must exist, I totally get that. I'm not saying it's a song that should be played on the radio. I'm not saying it's a song that uh, we should let our children listen to. But I'm also not saying that it shouldn't exist and that it doesn't have value because it truly does. The intention does matter. And so when we're saying it's the heart that counts, that's what we're really saying. The intention matters. Now, if you're singing Reckless Love at church and you disagree with the way that word is used, but you're just singing along because everybody else is singing. Well, you're, you're worshiping. You're not worshiping. At exactly. That point. You're out of it. And at that point you're using it incorrectly. Mm-hmm. But if you understand the intention behind it and you agree with that intention and you're singing it with that intention, then what you're saying is accurate. What you're doing is right. And God takes it at face value. Because he knows what you're thinking. And I know that's a the phrase. I've gotten a lot of, of heat for like bagging on televangelists that I believe prey on people. From people that tend to like follow those televangelists. Mm-hmm. And the phrase is always, but you don't know their heart. And my response is. You do. You don't have to see and read their mind. You will see based on the fruit of their faith. That's exactly how the Bible lays it out. Mm-hmm. You will know them by their love. You will you will see the fruit of the spirit growing in their lives. And if you do not, they do not have that spirit in them. And so if you're just judging people based on the, the, a word that they're saying in a, a song that you disagree with, but you're not actually looking for the fruit of the spirit that comes from that and from their lives, then you're not seeing the whole picture. Mm-hmm. That being said, I do kind of agree with his point when he's talking about worship songs that are so generic, they could just as easily be sung about any other spiritual being. Or worse, a woman. <laughs> when it's like essentially just a love song that is, that is nothing specifically directed towards God. I do wish that some songs would be more intentional in their wording to make it clear what the song is. But that's just more about laziness in writing. <laughs> 
not necessarily about intention and heart. Sure. I can agree with that statement. <laughs> but then when you have songs that talk about the reckless and irresponsible love of God that, you know, only really truly his love can be characterized as honestly, yeah. really, truly reckless and irresponsible, you get people in a tizzy. That's true. So that's true. But you got to give you got to give them grace, too. Because it's a new thing, and it's and it's 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 it takes a little it takes a little buffer time to get used to it. If you're just refusing to get used to it, then that's when I I kind of just like well okay then just walk away, stop complaining about it. All right, next up on his list uh, of phrases, we really need the spirit to show up. His response: I immediately want to ask the question, which spirit, and how do you know it's him? What this statement may reveal is a fixation on an experience, but Christians don't gather together so that they can experience God as if it's a sanctified frat party. We gather to pay attention to God, his presence in the sacraments, his voice in the scriptures, his spirit in his people, and to pay attention to one another, our companions on the way to the cross. To say that it's about God moving in a service is to leave that up to a subjective experience of whether he moved or not. If we aren't careful, we may think that as long as we danced, cried, shouted, were moved, etc., then it doesn't matter if what was said or sung was actually about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is letting experience define truth instead of letting truth define experience. And it's a bizarre non sequitur. I feel it, therefore it's true. No one would actually say this, but our actions may indicate that we are more concerned with what the experience of God is like than who God of the experience is. Uh, and he, I mean, he goes on to say, our, 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 our worship must begin with the question, what, what is true about God? Not what do I need, want, or expect to feel? And he said, every time the people of God gather in Christ's name, the spirit of God is there. You don't have to wait for God to show up. You plural are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He is present when we gather. The discipline of gathering weekly to worship is one of learning to pay attention to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, not to have a group sensation. Thoughts. Okay. Um, <laughs> this past, whatever it was, when we had D now. Yeah. Um, we had our friend Joey Porter who led the worship for that event come and do one of the shows. I think the Monday show from that week or whatever and talk with us. Well, Joey said something to the oh, teenagers. Sorry, on the yeah, he was on our show. Yeah, he was on our show. <laughs> I'm like, are you calling the church service a show? It's going against what we're doing here. I was thinking you were talking about the wow. sessions of D now. Okay. Got it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, okay. Sorry, I did not make that completely clear. <laughs> so anyway, thank you for clarifying because I'm sure there's probably somebody else out there that was like, uh, anyway. Um, so Joey said something. He addressed the teenagers one night during D now. I want to say it was the first night that we were together and he made something very clear that I had never heard put this way and I immediately loved it. Um, he told them to not feel afraid to worship. Mm. 
don't worry about what your friend beside you is doing. If you want to raise your hands, raise your hand. If you want to shout, shout. If you want to hoot and holler, hoot and holler. But if you want to stand and just sing, then stand and sing. If you want to sit down, sit down. But worship. Yeah. If we were to go to a basketball game, people who aren't fans don't go to basketball games. Well, they could be dragged there by a spouse. For the most part, <laughs> but you're not going to, but yeah, for right. Especially like NBA. Yeah. You're not going to buy a ticket and spend your money to go watch something that you don't enjoy doing. Right. So for the most part, the people that you're surrounded by at a basketball game or a football game, they're fans for one team or the other. Yeah. And you're going to see fans of different varieties and likenesses in the stands. You're going to see some who cheer. You're going to see some who raise their hands. You're going to see some that are yelling. And then you're going to see some that are just sitting and they're taking it in. They're watching the game for what it is. They're enjoying it. But they're all fans and they're all taking it in. They're all watching. Worship, as strange as it is to say, is that same way. We are all created unique. We are all created vastly different. The way that I worship is not going to be the same way that you worship. And it's not supposed to be the same way that you worship. There is not one set specific way to worship. It is about our heart individually as people. And it's about our relationship individually with God. So if I am moved by a certain song or words in a song, so moved that my hands are raised and tears and snot is flying everywhere, but you're also moved by those same words, but moved to the point where all you can do is sit in your seat and take it in. Your worship is no different than my worship. My worship is not better. And your worship is not better. To God, it's worship. To God, it is both equally us showing our love and gratitude for him. To say it's an experience to me is really, really hard and really, really infuriating. I cannot stand it when people label certain types of worship as an experience because there are people who are moved by that worship and who are moved to true, genuine worship. And simply because your unique relationship and your unique perspective does not move you in the same way, does not make it wrong. So I don't know if we're misinterpreting or if we're interpreting these things separately, but okay. I'm interpreting that you're essentially agreeing with him because the way I'm reading what he's saying is that the goal shouldn't be that we have to go and have an experience, but that we go to worship God and what happens happens 
But if we go with the expected purpose of, you know, the spirit showing up, having some sort of grandiose experience that we are absolutely moved every single time that we go, we run the risk of when we have a, a worship service where we don't get moved in that nature, that we walk away thinking that God was not in this place, that we did not experience God just because I did not have some sort of moving moment. That is what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm pretty, I feel like that's what he's saying. Okay. I feel like he's saying that, uh, that it shouldn't be about the seeking of some sort of extra experience, but rather the, the intention of we're worshiping God for God's sake and not for our sake. Mm -hmm. And so if that's all that happens, if we go and we worship God, but we don't have some sort of emotional movement or mountaintop experience that doesn't negate what we were there to do. Right. Right. Yeah. So I agree. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> and I agree with what you said, uh, from your perspective as well. Um, okay. 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 Lastly, and this kind of goes along with what you were talking about. We need to be free to express ourselves in our own way. He says, uh, now again, we're talking more about the words, mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily just the actions, but mm -hmm. we're talking about the words. And he says, freedom is a convoluted word muddled by the romantic era and the American revolution. Freedom in the American sense is quite different from freedom in Christ. Jesus didn't die to give us free speech. He died to set us free from the law of sin and death at work in us. Our culture has idolized autonomy and called it freedom. We like innovation and not imitation because innovation is an expression of independence and imitation is a proof of dependence. But biblical worship has nothing to do with the arrogant and the independent. If you insist on making this about expressing yourself, you will find yourself more at home uh, with the golden calf than with the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. After all, the golden calf was an image Israel was familiar with, an expression of worship they knew, and they made, and that made sense to them. You cannot fashion Yahweh into a golden statue. You were fashioned by his image, which is why there is a prescribed way to worship him. It takes humility to say, I really don't know how to worship. It takes humility to ask, as the disciples did, Lord, teach us how to pray. And then to listen to the words of the Lord's prayer and let those words shape the language of your prayer. Can we pray our own prayers and write our own songs from our heart? Of course, but we would do well to let our language first be shaped by the Psalms, scripture, and the historic creeds and confessions of the church. As children, we learn to speak by being spoken to. Our mother or father says ball, and we watch their mouth and try to say it back to them. And then we say it with them, and soon we say it on our own. And then we speak on our own, but not with our own words. That would be gibberish. We speak the words spoken to us. So we worship and pray, speak, sing, pray the word that has been spoken to us. Or as Paul wrote, in Colossians 3.16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Thoughts? Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> on board. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think this is right. And I think this is where that fine line and the thing that people are worried about with songs like Reckless Love uh, are coming from just without understanding the whole uh, issue. Is I think that they're interpreting these situations as one person's interpretation of a word that is acceptable instead of understanding the real meaning behind the usage. Like if you're reading an old hymn that says, raise my Ebenezer, and you have no idea what raise my Ebenezer What's an means, Ebenezer? but you feel absolutely fine just belting that word out because it's in a hymnal. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, 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 how is that any different from singing reckless love when you don't fully understand what it means? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. these, <laughs> while it's not about the individual you do have an individual responsibility to know what you're singing and what they mean because there are songs out there there even worship songs even songs you'll hear on K-Love that probably aren't good representations of what we should be singing to God there are worship songs i mean there was a whole south park episode based exactly on this of course there was where they where where they started a christian band and the, the way they got popular was they took a bunch of songs about women and just changed girl to Jesus. And that's, there's a lot, there's a lot of people who could get away with that and make a whole lot of money mm-hmm. because they're not intentionally being written with forethought and with understanding what they're saying. And I think that's what he's saying here. I feel really bad because all that I can think right now is like... Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Ooh. <laughs> like all that I can. I, that could totally be a Christian song. That's all. If we never heard the Bieber, yeah. Bieber version and someone came out with Jesus, 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 we'd be singing in a church. Ooh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Ooh. And there are a lot of songs that have that exact same kind of yeah. depth to them. And yeah. you know it. <laughs> and they're usually songs with a lot of woes and wahs in them. Yeah. What does that even mean? <laughs> uh, I know our our worship pastor here refuses to do he songs that just have random uh, woes and wahs in them because they're not words. You're not singing anything. You're just making noises with your mouth. <laughs> so, there to me, there's a fine line. There is. Yeah. Um, because there's going to come a time where. Words aren't enough. Yeah. And I believe that's why make a joyful noise. (laughs) You know. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) I mean, a lot of people will use that argument that it doesn't say it has has to be pretty. It didn't say make a pretty noise. Yeah. Just a joyful noise. Okay. Well, if it ain't pretty, then it ain't joyful to anybody. (laughs) Um, I'm kidding. Uh. <laughs> but <laughs> I think when when you take a look, and this is something that a lot of people who lean on the side of, we have to go back to hymns, and we have to see what you know, early praise or early worship songs looked like. Okay, let's do that. Let's open up Psalms. Yeah. And let's look at all that David wrote. Yeah. Because there's a lot. 
in there yeah that would equate in today's time to reckless and irresponsible kinds of worship songs yeah i did air quotes but you guys can't see that <laughs> no you're absolutely right i mean like you know david in many psalms there's lines along the lines of kill me if i don't do this right or yeah. kill me if i remain this way mm-hmm. and uh I, I don't know if it's the Cray or one of, one of those one of those Capitol Records artists or old Capitol Records artists. Uh, one of the lyrics was, "Lord, put me to death if I don't spread the gospel." I'm like, "That's when I first heard it. I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> that's ridiculous. That is over the top, pal." And then I realized, no, that's that's essentially the same kind of emotion that David would put into the Psalms. Yeah, he would go from. I am wretched, I am awful, I am doing this all wrong, Lord, just wipe me out from this earth or abandon me. Or he would go to accusing God of abandoning him. Yeah. Uh, all these kind of things. And yet it would always end with basically, all right, I got it out of my system, Lord. Here's what I really think. And it was always praise. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's okay to be more realistic with what we're singing. And to not be ashamed to have words that are uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because that's exactly what the Psalms were. My goodness. And not just the Psalms, but we've been doing this study on Sundays in the, the church that I go to where we've been going through the book of Lamentations. I don't know about y'all, but if you've ever read the book of Lamentations, like, it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Jeremiah, the terms that he uses uh, and the way that he talks to God. Everything it, is meaningless. It's just so, <laughs> like, raising your fist to God, shaking your fist at God. That is what a lot yeah. of the lamentations are. And like, Buck up, buckaroo. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. How many times have we felt that way? Yeah. In life, how many times have we found ourselves like, what is happening, God? Why are you allowing this to happen right now? And then immediately you're like, oh, I, I don't mean that. I don't mean that. You know, <laughs> okay, don't lie to God. God already don't knows. Me. Don't spy me right, right here. But then you open up the book of Lamentations and you read it and you're like, oh, yeah. Okay, it's okay for me to feel that way. Yeah. There's um. You know, we both do celebrate recovery, and we talk about that a lot on the show. And there's a, a section in the, the forgiveness portion, step, where it talks about don't forget to forgive God. And that phrase takes everybody aback when they first hear it. Oh, yeah. It, until you explain it. So we're not saying God did anything wrong. We're saying that you have wrongly attributed some of your suffering to God intending to make you miserable. Mm-hmm. And you have put a block on your heart where you have blamed God and you need to let that go. So while we're not, when we say forgive God, we're not saying that God needs your forgiveness. We're saying that you need to do just like you do when you forgive others and let that stuff go from your heart because mm -hmm. it's eating away at what you're trying to do here. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what, what these things are doing. These, these, you know, Psalms or any of these other situations where they're crying out to God, even Jesus himself, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes. Mm-hmm. 
these aren't actually accusations against God. These are expressions of our struggles and our internal, uh, well, our inability to see the whole picture. Yeah. They're real, raw, emotional reactions, which we are emotional beings. I'm not saying that they're correct. I'm not saying that it's okay (laughs) to yell at God, but I am saying that God knows it's going to happen because God has seen it even from the man that he (laughs) labeled a man after God's own heart in the Bible. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's... (laughs) It's okay. <laughs> it's okay to express yourselves in that way. But you also need to do the work to make sure that what you're doing is in line with what God wants you to become. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think I agree mostly with this article. He says it in some pretty curt ways, pretty, pretty straightforward ways. But I think mostly. He gets it across. We'll put this in the uh, show notes uh, on our weekly post at lovethynerd.com at the end of the week so you can read the whole thing for yourself. It's kind of an old article, but it's one that really stuck out to me. And uh, I don't think a lot of people have read it. Uh, so I think I think you'd enjoy it. Hmm. Any, any final thoughts on that? Mm, so you said something early in the article um, where you referenced the fruit of the spirit. Yeah. Um, And I think this is something that a lot of people tend to forget or tend to overlook. We, we know Galatians five, if we're going to talk about the fruit of the spirit, then we know, okay, that's in, that's in Galatians chapter five and we flip to it. But what we don't realize is that that's towards the end of the chapter. Mm. And even more so just before you get to the fruit of the spirit, there's a warning that talks about. People who have these characteristics will not inherit the kingdom of God, mm. specifically what it says. And then it goes into the fruit of the spirit. But if, if you, if you are of my, if you are mine and I am yours, then you will have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Right. I had a really long, hard discussion with one of my children where I said, are you saved? And their answer was, you know, I am, but I don't because the Bible clearly says if I am yours and you are mine, a peach can't grow from an orange tree. (laughs) It's just not how it works. So if we're walking around angry and bitter and having impure thoughts or drawing lines in the sand of God can only do this. God can only love this. God can, you know, Yeah. then where is our love? Where's our joy? Where's our peace? Where's our fruit? Right. Are we trying to grow peaches from an orange tree? (laughs) I think maybe we should all read the warning just above the fruit of the spirit. (laughs) and truly examine what fruit we're bearing. I like that. Don't tune out yet. We're not done. After the break, we'll break this down even further and discuss just what a worship song really is. Stick around.
Hey everyone, I'm Hector Mirai, and this is Faith and Fandom 180 on LTN Radio. So Saturday was free comic book day, and I had my booth set up outside a local comic book shop, along with about eight other vendors outside. Saturday also was a swelteringly hot, moist armpit of a day of North Carolina heat. And so I was outside from roughly 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. in the sweltering stankonia that was this past Saturday. And I had a great time. Got open cool doors, had got to share and do great things with Faith and Fandom. But I was I was hot. Like the candles on my table melted to the table. Um but there were four comic book artists that are friends of mine that they had tables inside the comic shop in the lovely, lovely, luxurious air conditioning. And I have to say, I was a little jealous. Like, there was times I would catch myself kind of grumbling like, man, I should be in there. But one of the things I realized is that too often I've try to toot my own horn or convince myself I deserve things I don't necessarily deserve. And scripture teaches us in Luke 14, 10, but when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. Verse 11 says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I, in my own heart and in my mind, was trying to exalt myself to a place of more recognition and better air conditioning. And while that may be an isolated incident, I've seen that so often we get into the place where we want recognition and we want credit and we want acclaim so badly that we start to put ourselves in the way of God because we want the recognition we think we deserve and we end up in a place where God actually has to bring us down a notch. Let's let God put us in the good seats. Remember to catch Faith and Fandom 180 every Wednesday morning on the Back Row Morning Show only on LTN Radio. And if you'd like to learn more about Faith and Fandom, head over to faithandfandom.org where you can learn about our Comic-Con ministry, podcasts, memes, apparel, and book series. You can even read new chapters before they make it to the next book. I'm Hector Mirai, and thank you for spending the last 180 seconds with me. Not surprised. Have you found yourself confused and unable to make sense of much recently? Are you unable to keep up with the latest restrictions and safe practices and guidelines? I feel like that's been our life more or less for the last year or so. Just when I think I know exactly what's going on, something changes. As soon as I find myself confident and assured of where I stand, new information arises and I find myself caught between truths. This past week, I was struggling with accepting what is right for myself and my family and admitting those things to people in our lives. Afraid of criticism or backlash, I tried figuring out ways around conversations. I began overthinking scenarios and situations that hadn't even happened yet. 
My heart began to race at just the thought of what if, and then, like a rushing wave over unexpected toes in the sand, I remembered God's promise, a promise of peace and assurance. Ecclesiastes 1.9 reminds us, what once was will be again. There is nothing new under the sun. While the entirety of this passage is anything but comforting, this verse alone brings about peace. Even through all the uncertainty the world is throwing our way, and even when nothing seems to make any amount of sense, we can trust that God is not surprised. He's not thrown off course, and his plan is not foiled because of the world. If you find yourself feeling weary and overwhelmed, just as I often do, rest in the promise that God is still in control, and more importantly, is more powerful than anything causing you fear. Don't waver between false truths, but instead stand firm in the truth of a God who is not surprised. Welcome back to the Back Row Morning Show. I'm Radio Matt. And I'm Mo. There's a lot going on on our Discord, backrowdiscord.com, where you get to chat after the show, share your own show ideas, keep up to date with our Twitch and YouTube, be a part of our radio shows, and also see the behind-the-scenes workings of Back Row Games, including Sunday School Answers. The folks in our Discord already know what expansion packs we're hoping to release every month for the next year. Again, go to backrowdiscord.com to join. This week, we're talking about worship music. Now, we started off talking about specific words, then mindsets, but now we break it down even further. What even qualifies as a worship song in the first place? Now, this is actually a kind of a case study on the song, Raise a Hallelujah. Raise a Hallelujah. Exactly, that one, yeah. So uh, this is an article uh, from last year from Matt Ward. Uh, and the article is t- titled, What is and is not a worship song, a case study, raise a hallelujah. And he says, let's start with the basic assumption. You're interested in what happens in your church's worship services. If you are any kind of pastor, theologian, or anything of that nature, you should be interested. Try this exercise with me. Think about your past few worship services. What songs did your congregation sing? Some of the songs from my church's past few Sundays include His Mercy is More, Jesus Messiah, Grace Greater Than Our Sin, and How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Then ask how each song was used. For example, I used His Mercy is More as an opening declaration of praise, Jesus Messiah to introduce His Lord's Supper service, Grace Greater Than Our Sin during a time of confession, and How Deep the Father's Love for Us as an invitation to commitment. Finally, because this article is being written to pastor theologians, review the text to evaluate how the song was intended to be used. Sometimes, perhaps regularly, song leaders try to use a song in a way other than its text intends. There are countless ways this can happen, but I want to focus on the surprisingly common scenario in which we fill our quote-unquote worship service with songs that are not quote-unquote worship songs. Think about this with me. How would you define a worship song? I define it as a song that is either to or about the triune God, sung in such a way that encourages corporate participation. Now, he says, please note I'm talking about corporate worship. Personal and private worship opens many unique and separate possibilities. But in a church setting, this is what we're talking about. So he says, can we agree to use that definition for now? Now, consider those four songs I mentioned above and ask three questions. 
Who is the song to? What is the song about? And who is the supposed singer of the song? He says, His Mercy is More is a song to be sung by Christians to one another to celebrate God's mercy. Jesus Messiah could be sung by anyone to make objective declarations about Jesus and salvation in him. Grace Greater Than Our Sin is a song to be sung by Christians both to other Christians to celebrate God's grace and to non-Christians to invite them to experience God's grace. And How Deep the Father's Love for Us is a song to be sung by Christians to remind each other about God's incredible love. He said, did you notice anything about that list? All of those songs really only make sense when sung by a Christian, which is a good mark of a worship song. And all of those songs are clearly about a biblical attribute of God, which is a good mark of a worship song. But none of those songs is actually directed to, to God. God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, looking through the songs my church enjoys singing, singing, many of them are not actually sung to God, but rather sung about God. To be sure, my church uses plenty of songs sung to God, like Living Hope, Speak, O Lord, and How Great Thou Art. But they are in the minority. And that's fine. Either category can be defined as a worship song. How Great Thou Art opens up a subcategory in which the text jumps back and forth. Verse 3 is about God, but the rest of the song is to God. And whether or not I like this as a technique, it is not uncommon. Carrie Job took Be Still My Soul, a text by Corinthia von Schlegel, sung to, uh, sung to our souls about God's sovereignty, and added a chorus sung to God. You goes from meaning my soul to God and back without warning. The only indicator would be a capital U which I'm noticing more and more typists ignore, but that's for another day. Matt Redman's popular 10,000 Reasons does a variant. The song is sung to God, but it mixes in my soul as a you in the chorus. If you have a group of Christians who think about the text and can actively translate those lyrics in their own hearts, uh, in their own hearts worship of God, then everything's fine. But I have had to explain all three of those songs to individuals in my church, namely the object jumping, And I have come away with the same worry. What is going through your mind while you're singing this song after I had told you you were using it to worship God? This leads to the purpose of this article. Is there a point in time in your worship service when the song leader says something like, let's worship God together, or implies that you are all about to worship God? Assuming as much, shouldn't that mean that what follows is worship? I say it should, which is why I say that worship leaders should make certain that it does. And I would be very surprised if you don't immediately know the song which I'm about to talk about. It's charted number two on Billboard, uh, and at the time of this article, it was a top ten song on the major church use list in Lifeway Worship, Praise Charts, and CCLI. It was nominated for 2019 Dove Award, and I would not be surprised if your church had sung it or had sung it in a service in the past. And if that's true, I hope you have taken the time to learn a little about the song. It's a product of the growing Bethel music community based in Northern California and associated with the Pentecostal Bethel Church. It was a result of a call to prayer for the da- for a, a dangerously uh, for the dangerously ill children of the Bethel music executive. When the children recovered, Bethel music decided to include the song on its 2019 album Victory. And it's an intentionally simple song about the supernatural effects of prayer, about relying on prayer and worship as a weapon to overcome fear and sickness. The song goes like this. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah louder than than the unbelief. I raise a hallelujah. My weapon is a melody. I raise a hallelujah. Heaven comes to fight for me. 
I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm, louder and louder. You're going to hear my praises roar. Up from the ashes, hope will arise. Death is defeated. The king is alive. I raise a hallelujah with everything inside of me. I raise a hallelujah. I will watch the darkness flee. I raise a hallelujah in the middle of the mystery. I raise a hallelujah. Fear, you lost your hold on me. Sing a little louder in the presence of my enemies. Sing a little louder, louder than the unbelief. Sing a little louder. The song has encouraged and inspired many Christians to face difficult situations. It also has the word hallelujah in the title. And hallelujah, in most people's minds, automatically means worship song, right? That seems to be the prevailing notion, and not just from the informational interviewing I did for this article. The Gospel Music Association, when presenting, uh, which presents the Dove Awards, nominated Raise a Hallelujah in their Worship Recorded Song of the Year. They have other categories they could have chosen. They define worship song as thus. Songs specifically used to lead churches in worship, which invite participation and which tend to have a vertical focus toward God rather than a, than toward the listener and which have had a significant impact in congregational worship during the eligibility period. And everywhere I've heard this song used, it has been used as a worship song, but is it? So who is the song to? That's actually not clear. The first verse is a declaration. It's almost irrelevant who it's sung to. It's not sung to God. Uh, I don't think it's sung to other Christians. It's too boastful for that. Not boastful in a bad way, but we'll get to that in a second. It might be sung to myself as in a personal encouragement. The chorus has a you in it. There's definitely, it's definitely not my soul and it's way too brash to be God or other Christians. In the second verse, you is clearly defined as fear. But it is not clear if that is the representation of my inner turmoil or a representation of the enemies against agents of Satan uh, that I'm raising the hallelujah in presence of. I think it's the latter. But based on what I know of the artist, the church, the text, and the way the song is presented, I think the song is to our enemies. It's sung in defiance of the power of Satan in our lives and circumstances. So ultimately, the song is sung To those who fight against us, demons, Satan, principalities. What, a, what is the song about? It is about me and how I overcame adversity through prayer and worship. If you were in a devotional state of mind when singing it, you realize that the cause uh, of your bold declaration is the victory of, of Jesus over death and the promise of the arsenal of heaven for victory over Satan. But that is mostly implied. On its face, it is a song about me. Who is the supposed singer? It's kind of a clunky question, but it means, can a non-Christian sing this song with integrity? This is clearly a song for Christians, even though the wording is just vague enough to make it non a non-Christian think he can sing along. We know that the things declared in the text can only be true of Christians. So let's take stock. The song is a boast directed at the enemies of God in the vein of 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57, which says, when the perishable have been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Paul needed to remind the Corinthians of those stakes, so should we remind the enemies of God that their defeat is sure. But... That doesn't make it a worship song. And this is where the misdirect comes from. The hallelujah in the title refers not to the song itself. 
But the song that this song is about, it says this song is not the hallelujah. This song is about the hallelujah that we will raise in the presence of our enemies. The song is not a worship song. It's a song about a worship song. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, he said, perhaps the writers did so because they want us to inject our own worships, uh, our own worship song, which would be really cool writing, uh, whatever their reason, they did not put a hallelujah in the song. So it's not a worship song. So what is it? There are actually many, many songs like this in our hymnals. And I immediately think of the Hank Williams classic, I'll fly away. Think about that song. It's a random declaration made to anyone in earshot that I'm flying away when I die. No mention of Jesus, no clue given as to the audience, but the word hallelujah uh, is in it. Other songs that come to mind include Because He Lives, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus, Amazing Grace, and Come Ye Sinners. They're not to God. They're mostly directed to non-Christians to encourage them to come to Jesus. They're not really about God. They're about us. Our, more specifically, they're about how our relationship with Jesus has affected us. And so he goes on to postulate, I won't read everything for the rest of this because I know it's already been a long article, but he goes on to postulate that these are not worship songs. These should be a different category of songs entitled testimony songs. These should be songs reserved for the special music, not corporate worship, still can be used in church, but they would be sung by a singular person because it's not a worship song. What do you think about that? Okay, so there's remember, a lot to take in. I grew up in <laughs> I did not grow up in a Baptist church. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. Um, I grew up having a praise and worship service. That was what we called it. Yeah, it was praise and worship. So when I moved over to a Baptist church, n not saying praise and worship. I just kind of thought, okay, Baptists are lazy. They dropped the praise. <laughs> um, not really. But anyway. Um, <laughs> Always cutting them corners. <laughs> the, lazy Baptists. The more that I thought about it, the more I realized it's a bigger deal than just dropping a word. Yeah. Worship in the Baptist church is worship. It's supposed to be given to God, directly to God. Mm -hmm. It is about you and God. Okay. That's, I get it. Yeah. Okay. But praise, just like testimony, they're saying in the article, yeah. is equally as important. Absolutely. In our services. Praise is where we get our encouragement. If Barnabas was in our church, I think he'd be singing nothing but praise songs. That's all he'd be well, walking I mean, around doing. I mean, yeah. I mean, you got to think about what the word praise means in any other context. It means, you know, showering somebody yeah. with, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I'd say compliments, but that's not exactly voice. the word I want to say. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's extolling the virtues of the person that you're talking about. Yeah. But that does not inherently mean that you're talking to that person. Right. Because you can extol praise about someone to other people. Exactly. Uh, and you're absolutely right. 
And so it just like we've been talking about all this week, it really comes down to the wording and how it's presented. Mm -hmm. And so in the services that have worship services, there is a certain connotation that is expected that these will be songs that are sung to God, Mm -hmm. that we are coming into a moment where we are worshiping God specifically for that purpose. Right. Praise songs are a completely different thing. But I think that just like you might've thought when you came to the church, they're just lazy and they're not saying the word. I think that's actually happening. Mm. Not, not necessarily just in like Baptist churches, but I mean, I think that's actually happened that we used to call this genre of music praise and worship Mm -hmm. and it encompassed both. Yeah. And then I think that while in reality, the music was trying to focus specifically on worship. And so we actually had a, tried to split those genres up. Mm -hmm. People saw that happening in their playlists and on their radio stations and just thought, yeah, we're just going to call it worship now. Yeah. And I think there was a miscommunication in the minds of many, most believers that these are the same kind of song. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the end, this guy is talking about something that should would be ideal. I don't think he's actually saying, let's plant a flag in the freaking ground and make this a point and make this a, an issue in the church. But I do think that he's like, if we're going to be genuine about this, then yeah, let's do it right. If it's worth doing, do it right the first time kind of thing. If we're going to have a praise service call it a praise service. If we're going to have a worship service, call it a worship service. If you want to have these songs in a worship service, have it set as a testimony moment sung by one person. You can invite other people to sing along with you, but it is not presented as a corporate worship situation. So here's my true thoughts on special music. (laughs) I don't like it. (laughs) Why? I don't think it should be a thing. Why is that? Um, Highland used to do this really awesome thing on Fifth Sunday, where yeah. it's Fifth Sunday Sing. Sunday Sing. Love and that. we set aside Sunday nights. If there was a fifth Sunday in the month, we knew, okay, that was the night for special music. And that, to me, is brilliant. It's beautiful. Because, and listen, I've never spoken this to anybody because I realized that this is a personal thing. It is not something that should be a line drawn in the sand. Okay. Okay. But to me, when someone gets on stage and performs special music, it is more about that person than it is about God. Not just for the person singing it, but for the audience also. Because how many times in the audience has it turned someone to praise or to worship of God? Never, never. When was the last time that you listened to a special music sung by someone and your heart was turned toward praise or worship? No, I don't think that's fair. I don't agree with you all the way there. Okay. But I will say that it is a lot rarer than in a genuine corporate worship setting. Okay. There's a lot rare that that occurs, but I wouldn't go and say that it never occurs because okay. it's occurred to me. Okay. Uh, but you're absolutely never right. Never and when... always are words that I really shouldn't <laughs> use. I get that. So. But uh, I, I do absolutely agree 
that it, it becomes a performance mm -hmm. in the middle of a church service. Mm -hmm. And speaking as someone who has done that many times, yeah. performed special music since I was a teenager, uh -huh. many, many times in worship services, I have not done it in many years because of that exact situation. Mm -hmm. I agree wholeheartedly. It feels out of place. Mm -hmm. It feels like, all right, let's stop worshiping God for a second and extol the talent of this one person. Mm -hmm. Because to me, if it's going to be praise or it's going to be, well, okay. So we're saying it's praise because yeah, we would say that these would be praise. Songs. Okay. So if it's going to be praise, then that kind of offers an invitation for others to also participate in the praise. Yeah. And that doesn't happen. You don't rarely. Yeah. Yeah. Very rarely. Typically don't hear the audience participating in the song. Even if you know the song, they're not going to sing along with the song because that's a special, that's a special music time. Right. We're allowed. You would feel, person. you would feel uncomfortable doing it. Right. Unless the person specifically requested to sing along and like the words were still on the screen. Right. You would feel uncomfortable because you wouldn't know, well, am I going to be stepping on this person's performance or if, is this supposed to be directed towards God? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think this is great because you did not know that we were moving on to a new discussion oh. about this specifically. Okay. Uh, so we're moving on to an article from Christianity Today, and it's called Six Important Differences Between Performance Music and Worship Music. Worship is different. Some of the most enjoyable, memorable evenings that I've ever spent has been at concerts, listening to musicians entertain us, inspire us, and make us gasp in awe at their artistry. But worship music is something else. It is, it, it, I mean, it can be any musical style out there, but the words are what draw the line between worship music and performance music or praise music or testimony music, whatever we wanted to call it here. So number one, in performance, the focus is on the musicians and in worship, the focus is on Jesus. And that's what you just covered. And so that's a given. And we'll move on to the next point already because we've covered it. Number two, in performance, those on stage might be the only ones singing in worship. Everyone should be singing along. Again, something we just talked about. Mm -hmm. Number three, in performance, the words should support the melody. In worship, the melody should support the words. And so this is kind of what we've been talking about this week. Uh, have you ever, the, the article says, have you ever had a favorite song that you knew all the words to? Then we're appalled or confused when you pause to consider the lyrics. Mo, I know you have a checkered history with music. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, we all grew up singing a lot of songs that were on the radio. Oh, yeah. And then we grew up oh, and we're yeah. like, oh, that was talking about that? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's because great performance-based songs are primarily about the melody, not mm -hmm. the words that are being sung. Mm -hmm. But in worship, it's the opposite. Words matter first. Uh, even when groups like the Grammy artists make their categories, worship music is the only musical genre delineated by lyrical content, not musical style. This is why it's harder to write a great worship song. When you're writing a song for performance, you only need a great musical structure. If you also have great lyrics, it's a bonus and it can make your song a classic, but it's not needed. Great worship song needs strong lyrics and music that enhances them. But the lyrics must lead the music and not vice versa. And that's hard to do, but it's essential. Mm. And I think that's why we struggle in the realm of worship music when it comes to shallow songs. Because I think many of these fall into, it's a great song. It's a great melody. 
but the lyrics came secondarily. Mm. I really do. Number four, in performance, the integrity of the musicians is secondary. In worship, the integrity of the musicians is essential. Some of the greatest musicians in history were scoundrels, from Mozart to Jerry Lee Lewis to Ozzy Osbourne. Until recently... Mozart and Ozzy in one... <laughs> Until recently, not only has their bad, action, or their bad behavior not tarnished their reputation as artists, it's often enhanced the public's interest in them and their songs, but it's not so in worship music. When you're leading people in worship, it matters that you're living a life of faith and integrity. Uh, the article says a few years ago, there was a big debate about whether or not it's okay to have unbelievers playing on the worship team in church. And it's stunning that we had to have that conversation. How can someone lead others in worship if they're not worshipers themselves? You can't lead people to a place that you're not going. That's interesting. Absolutely. Because that, that did come up in our church as well uh, several years ago. There was... There was, our band was in, in desperate need of a drummer. We knew someone mm -hmm. who was willing to come and drum, but he was not a believer. And that question came up, like, are, can, can we do that? And at first you want to say, yeah, of course we can. Why would we turn him away? But when you think about it in that form, like, yes, this is not a performance. Yeah. This is, this is a group of leaders leading a congregation in a distinctively Christian uh, experience. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you would, you would have to <laughs> worship leaders need to be held to the same standards of behavior that we hold pastors to. If worship through music is an essential element of the church service, and it is, then the character of the leaders matter. Musicianship is important in worship leaders, but not as much as integrity. Number five, virtuoso musical flourishes can attract you to a performance, but they distract from worship. I'm guilty of this. I really am. He says, I've been drawn into worship by musicians celebrating God's praises in every musical style you can imagine, even though musical styles or even through musical styles that I don't particularly like. I've even been blessed while being led by musicians who weren't especially talented, who were offering their gift with a sincere, available heart. But the one thing that can take me out of a moment is when a musician or a singer makes it all about themselves by adding musical flourishes that draw attention to their talent instead of to Jesus. When it comes to musicians on worship teams, the rule is to be so good that you blend in, not stand out. I have been guilty of this because when I am added to a worship team, I'm usually added as the tenor. I'm added as the, the harmony. Mm -hmm. And when you're the tenor, your, your, your part's typically louder. Your, tar your part is supposed to... Uh, it's supposed to stand out. <laughs> I mean, it's supposed to clash in a good way with the melody. It's supposed to be, be something different than what the main mm -hmm. thread is. Mm -hmm. You're that, supposed to be able to hear it. That, yeah, that typically the rest of the church is not singing along with. Typically. And uh, that's for musicians, musicianship, sure. Uh, but also, it's often for people that have to sing in a different register. <laughs> like uh, our worship leader, he sings a lot of songs in a lower register. Uh, and our youth pastor, who sometimes fills in, is even lower. And I can't sing half the songs that they sing at the low register. And so often when that's the case, you want a tenor or a, a, a soprano 
to be singing a higher part that some people have to sing along with if they're going to sing along with it comfortably. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> having that in there opens that door wide for someone to really have fun with the music instead of actually paying attention to what we're there to do. And I know I've been guilty of that so many times because I love singing. Uh, it is a gift that I've been given. Uh, I, uh, and I mean that here's the thing, <laughs> and I don't say that word a lot. So listen up people, that phrase, uh, I'm not boasting when I say I'm naturally talented at singing because that means I didn't work for it. I am more impressed by people who worked for it and are good because they worked for it. I am the spoiled brat who was born with, with a, a, an ability to harmonize really, really well without having to practice. And that spoiled brat comes out often when I'm given the opportunity to be on stage <laughs> and sing because I, I start vocally bragging about all the awesome things I can do by doing them on stage. And it very easily comes down to, gee, how good that was in my brain, as opposed to, what we're actually there to do. Mm -hmm. And I've caught myself on many occasions in the middle of a worship song after I hit a part saying, yes, I nailed that, as opposed to saying anything towards God, yeah. <laughs> as opposed to being in the moment. It was about a performance for me, mm -hmm. not about leading people in worship. That's something I, I have to work on, and that's one of the reasons I'm not really trying to be on the worship team right now, because I know that's a problem for me. Mm -hmm. It does distract from worship. I don't... When, when I was younger, there were many times... I mean, it happened when I did special music, but there were many times where I'd just be singing a tenor part, a harmony part, behind someone in church that after church service or after the worship service, they would turn around and say, you sing really well. Mm -hmm. And I used to eat those moments up. But then like the more they happened or like here at church, I get people that come up to me every now and then and say, I really wish you'd get back up on that worship team. I miss hearing your voice. I'm like, oh, thank you. I, mm -hmm. I, I thank them. And I'm like, that is not a good reason for me to be on the worship team. Yeah. <laughs> that is just building my ego. <laughs> like it's made me more and more uncomfortable. Not, you know, I'm already naturally uncomfortable with praise, but, hmm. uh, <laughs> but I did used to eat those up at least internally. Like I'm like, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yes, I am great. Thank you. Uh, but now it, it just makes me uncomfortable and it cements in my mind like, yeah, I probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I, I usually save my talents now for like the Christmas Eve service where we do a lot of performance. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't do it. I'm not great at it. <clears throat> I'm not great at it. Any thoughts? I... <laughs> this, and honestly, I appreciate your honesty because there are a lot of people who may possibly be feeling convicted right now. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. Um, just because... God has given you a talent mm -hmm. does not mean you have to use it in the, the biggest, most grand way right. that you possibly can. Um, we have to remember that 
everything we go through, everything God brings us through, um, everything he gives us is for his glory and our good. Yeah. Not for our glory. And I know that there are a lot of people who kind of see singing on a praise team or singing in a choir or, you know, their position in that area as, uh, I want to say a right. Yeah. Um, and not really as the privilege that it is. Yeah. The honor that it is. Right. Um, when you consider that you are leading people into worship, that's something that's holy Mm -hmm. and it needs to be kept that. And if for whatever reason, attention is drawn to you. Now I'm not saying that, you know, if somebody out in the crowd if your heart is pure and your worship is pure and you truly are worshiping God and someone out in the crowd happens to be drawn to you for whatever reason, right? that's not your that's fault. That's a separate thing. Yeah, absolutely. But if you are purposely making your voice heard, where's your intent at? Yeah. Where's your heart at? Do you, are you seeking that praise? Cause I've done the same thing. Do you come off the stage going, okay, who's going to tell me how it was after church? Do you walk up to people and say, Hey, was, was that okay? Did that sound all right? How did we do? Why? <laughs> What's the purpose? Right. Cause it, at that point it's not for God's glory. And that's something I think that we need to really reflect on and be honest about. Right. And then be willing to say, you know what? I'm going to sing from my seat. I'm going to worship from my seat because that's where I need to be right now. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. (laughs) And the last, uh, the last point here in this article that kind of goes along with that is uh, performers need to be skilled musicians. Worship leaders need to be committed worshipers. So when leading worship through music, we should strive for excellence, not so people can stand in awe of our performance, but so people will stand in awe of Jesus. Worship teams should practice relentlessly to achieve musical excellence, but in doing so, they should strive to be so in sync with each other that they're not thinking as much about chord changes as they are about being active participants in the worship they're leading us into. Okay, so this is something that I struggled with. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. The Holy Spirit is not on a time frame. Right. Okay. Um, the Holy Spirit, I think it was, I don't remember what article it was that we, we've read this past week. They're all starting to run together at this point. <laughs> um, but, oh, see, now I completely lost my train of thought. The Holy Spirit uh-huh, is not yeah. bound by time. It's not, he's not bound by time. Um, the Holy Spirit um, is. Okay. Blank. Anyway, I'll get back there eventually. Um, When we truly 
allow for the Holy Spirit to move. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we don't put up restraints or walls or. Are you saying the Holy Present or Holy Spirit is always present? He is always present. That's not, like That's not what I was is that not going. What saying? That's not where I was going. Um, <laughs> what bothers me <laughs> is when a song, you have a set of worship songs. Gotcha. You're going to sing those three songs. You're going to sing the first verse, the chorus, the second verse, the chorus twice. You're going to end it and you're moving on to song two. You're going to sing the first verse. When you do that without allowing for the Holy Spirit to kind of dictate and allow the worship to flow and move the way that it's supposed to, you're putting restraints. You're saying, okay, the Holy Spirit can only move to this part of this song, and then that's it. Okay. I think, I don't think that you're wrong. Okay. Let me preface this by saying that first. But you're going to disagree with me in a way. I don't disagree with you necessarily either. Okay. But I will say that's much more difficult of an ask than I think most people would realize. Because I would think that, and, and I say this as someone who has been on stage in a worship team setting for many years, it is often very difficult to tell the difference between the spirit is moving, so we need to keep the song going, or I'm so good at performing this song that people are reacting to it. We need to keep this song going. I think that for many worship leaders, constraining them to a specific set uh, order allows for you to still present the song in its full heartedness with its full message and in its full corporate worship setting and reducing the risk of exactly what this other, that, that other point was talking about flourishes for performance sake because it's the same thing that happens at concerts. Sure. It, it becomes like this encore mentality. Eh, it's a fine line. That, yeah. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm not saying it doesn't always happen. I mean, I'm not saying it always happens that way. No, I'm I just know. saying it's sometimes difficult. It, it is definitely a fine line. And basically in the article, that's what they're saying is that a worship leader needs to be worship minded. Right. And while you can't go up there and just be willy nilly with your, your playing and your singing, there has to be structure. There has to be, you know, we have to be a good steward of time as well. You sure. know, yeah. um, there are things, there are the rules, if you will, that a worship leader needs to follow. Mm-hmm. However, there also needs to be freedom in allowing the spirit to move however the spirit's going to move. Sure. And I think where a lot of worship leaders go wrong is making sure they hit every verse and they hit every note of every verse and they hit the chorus when they're supposed to and then they end in a timely fashion. Gotcha. As opposed to saying... All right, guys, speaking to their worship team before service starts, 
This is the outline, kind of like what we do here on the show. Here's the outline. These are the major points that we're going to hit, but we're going to let God have control of this. Sure. And um, again, don't disagree with you. Yeah. At the same time, we get to a practicality point of the worship team. It is difficult for a set of musicians to not all be on the same page of where the music is going to go. Sure. And to keep that song going. Sure. I would say that you are absolutely correct when it comes to the end of a song. When we're at a situation where we have made it through the order of the song, I think that the ability to then carry on repeating the chorus right. or even calling back that we're going to go back to this one verse or the bridge or whatever. Yeah. I think that is more acceptable than just be like, okay, well, I might sing the third verse first. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> or, no, or and in that, like that way, you can't, you're not leading right. your congregation. Right. Because if you start with the third verse, then it leaves room for confusion. <laughs> right. That it, yeah. it would just, it would just cause people to be taken out of the moment. Exactly. Especially the poor sound guy <laughs> who doesn't know what slide needs to be going next. That's fair. But uh, I do, I do agree that we definitely should open up the end of, if not all, all the three worship songs, at least the final song, open up the end for the possibility of if the room is really into the worship set, if this, this, uh, if this experience is happening, which of mm -hmm. course we said earlier, you know, we're not going seeking experience, but seeking the ability to worship God. But if there is a moment where an experience is happening, where the corporate worship is, you know, lifting into a, a, a level that we don't want to stop singing yet, mm -hmm. you should have the freedom to continue singing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I do, I do know when this is happening in our church, um, when our worship leader, you can tell when he feels what's happening is happening. Mm -hmm. And what he will often do is start the chorus again, but stop playing and yes. direct everybody in the, in the band to stop playing and to stop singing mm -hmm. and just let the church sing the chorus a cappella mm -hmm. in true worship without any performance whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And those moments are so beautiful and really, really bring the connectivity of what we're doing to everybody in the room. Mm -hmm. They are powerful moments. Most, most, not most, but several of the people, you know, feel that emotional tug, start crying, all kinds of things, just in the few moments it takes to sing this other chorus. There are moments that it has to happen. And I, I, I agree. We should in all situations be open to that kind of possibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. While at the same time not going overboard with it and just sure, let's just run it from the top. Right. <laughs> all three. Right. We'll, we'll be here to. We're not going to beat the the Methodist to Golden Corral today because this worship's going on forever. Right. We did have like a worship night, uh, a couple of years ago at a night of worship, and uh, we had a set. Of, it was like twelve songs. We did like twelve songs in a row, and. Uh, we finished, you know, they finished the last song and, and we were done. And there was one guy who just got really upset saying, well, why are we stopping? Why are you dictating when this is stopping? Why don't you just go until the spirit tells you to stop? Like, well, spirit's not telling me to keep going either. 
We, we, we sang our songs. We all had a great time. It was a great worship experience. What are you upset about? It was, well, I wanted to sing longer. Okay, well, you can sing longer. <laughs> Your worship doesn't have to end. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard because it almost becomes expected from some people. Yeah. That we have to have a worship experience. We have to feel the spirit move. And that takes us back to that same thing we talked about the other day is that becomes the focus Mm -hmm. chasing that experience. And if we don't feel it, then we didn't really have worship. Right. And so uh, just like you said, I think it is a fine line, but I definitely think that we should be prepared for it Mm -hmm. instead of just being so strict that we don't allow those experiences to happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Same page. Uh Uh-huh. We're good. (laughs) Usually. (laughs) All right. Um, That's all I got. That article here, I'll I'll give you that article again. That was called Six Important Differences Between Performance Music and Worship Music by Carl Vaters. Hmm. Uh, This is at Christianity Today, so you can check that out yourself. Um, That's going to do it for our week of focus on worship music. And and even though we kind of had different topics, they all kind of melded together pretty pretty easily yeah and that's that's what we're going for here so Mm -hmm. congratulate us (laughs) Mm -hmm. we're gonna take one more break when we get back we'll share some things that we love This week in nerd history, Saturday morning TV. Nerd history. I'm sure most of us Gen Xers and millennials have a soft spot in our heart for what Saturday mornings used to mean to us as kids. A big bowl of Lucky Charms and Saturday morning cartoons and kids programs. Batman, X-Men, Eek the Cat, Bobby's World, Animaniacs, Power Rangers, Digimon, Transformers, Ninja Turtles, G.I. Joe, Garfield and Friends, the list goes on and on. And it all started on August 19th, 1950, when the American Broadcasting Company, ABC, first aired two Saturday morning television shows for children, Animal Clinic which featured live animals, and the variety show Acrobat Ranch, which had a circus theme. The latter show, hosted by Jack Stilwell, Uncle Jim, featured two young acrobats, Tumbling Tim and Flying Flo, and children competing in games and stunts. Once other channels started following suit, Saturday morning slots began to be filled with older cartoons originally made for movie theaters, such as Looney Tunes and Mighty Mouse, and reruns of shows aired other times, like The Flintstones, The Jetsons, and Johnny Quest. In the mid-1960s, networks began producing their own programming specifically for that television block, and it kicked off a superhero boom. Superman, Aquaman, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Space Ghost, Birdman and the Galaxy Trio, Underdog, and more were created in this time. By the mid-90s, however, Saturday mornings started to decline, mainly due to, well, the government. The FCC introduced the EI mandate in 1990, but made it bolder in 1996. This required all broadcast networks to air educational and informational children's programs for at least three hours a week. And instead of trying to find three new hours to put this educational programming in, each week, of course, this would instead be focused on the Saturday morning block. Concurrent with EI, the Federal Trade Commission outlawed the advertising of both premium rate telephone numbers and tie-in merchandise during children's hours. This cut off large revenue sources for children's programs on network television. 
While some Saturday morning shows continued into the 2010s, Saturday morning programming for children was soon phased out by the networks in favor of Saturday morning news programming. And with the rise of streaming, making the world of Saturday morning cartoons available 24-7 on demand, the point of a dedicated block no longer exists. Currently, the idea is one of nostalgia, with MeTV launching a Saturday morning cartoons block this past January on its channels featuring classic Popeye, Pink Panther, Tom and Jerry, and Looney Tunes shows. I'm Radio Matt. See you next time for more Welcome back to the Back Row Morning Show as things are winding down for the day. But first, we wanted to share some things that we love. You ready? Yeah. Tomorrow War. Oh, right. I forgot we're doing movies for you. I'm doing... It's my yeah. last movie. It's your last one. Tomorrow War is really good. It's a three-parter. Okay, listen. I am not a, like, end of world... <laughs> I'm not a movie person to begin with. <laughs> Definitely not let a... Me, let me just start this thing about a love I mo- movie I love by saying I hate movies. Right? <laughs> so you know it's got to be a pretty good movie if I'm saying I love it. Um... I'm not a big movie fan. Definitely not a big end of world movie fan. Okay. Okay. But OMG, the Tomorrow War was amazing. It, hands down, one of my favorite movies of the year. I am a big movie fan and I am a big end of world movie fan. I'm not a big gross, nasty monster fan. Okay. And so... That I really had to fight through, but that tells you how good of a movie this was that I fought through it. It was such a good story. So well portrayed. Oh, it was so, it it was so good in so many ways. It was so good. I, okay. My biggest negative critique though is, and I even said this as we were watching it, but if y'all are going to have monsters, end of world monsters. Can we please make them look like something other than Demogorgons? <laughs> Every single show, movie, they all look the same. They all look like this weird like Venus flytrap kind of thing that inside opens out up looking its head. Nasty. Yeah, it's the like why? Well, have we all lost all of our creativeness that this is the only thing that could possibly take over the world now? Well, I think you're implying that the Demogorgon was the first thing that looked like it. And I don't think it was. Well, you're probably right. I mean, even Tremors, really. Dune, all those things. They all kind of yeah. look the it's same. Just a I just don't. It's just a terrifying thing, period. Even it opens its mouth in the same kind of manner. The whole weird flaps opening up with a bunch of teeth. It's true. It's gross. It's mm-hmm. a gross thing. All right, you ready for my thing? Yeah. My thing is a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It is a documentary-style podcast that's still ongoing. I think i got a few more weeks of it. Um, but it is basically dissecting what went wrong with Mars Hill Church and Mark Driscoll. Hmm. It is a, 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 a deep look into toxicity within church leadership. And, you know, Mark Driscoll wasn't one of the pastors that like had a, you know, an affair or like sexually harassed somebody or anything like that. This is purely just a 
personality conflict kind of situation and how that can go toxic really quickly and how when too much leadership is given to one person, how things can go horribly, horribly wrong. And uh, it's eye-opening and kind of scary at how wrong this really went behind the scenes. I don't want to listen to it. <laughs> but it's really good. It's really I, compelling. Whatever. Am I going to feel convicted? Probably not. I don't think you're guilty of any of these things. Okay. <laughs> good. You have so many other sins to worry about. <gasps> <laughs> I need anyway, to go read the... It's a, First part of Galatians chapter five. It's a really, really well put together podcast uh, that, I mean, it's, it's uh, painful to listen to at parts just because you feel for the situation. Even you feel even for Mark uh, many times because you, you just see how he let himself slip up in many ways. And you feel how, oh gosh, if you just made this one decision better, or if you just didn't fly off the handle this one time, you know, things would have went a lot better. And, uh, but it does, it does kind of scare you when you think about like church leadership, especially if you're getting into church leadership. I think it would be a great thing to listen to if that's something that you're a part of to help maybe protect yourself from making the same mistakes. Uh, so yeah, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Okay. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. Uh, Mo, let's end with our verse for the day. Our verse for the day is Hebrews 13, 1 through 2. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. And that's going to do it for our Back Row Morning Show for this week. We hope you enjoyed our discussion, and we look forward to having you join us again next week. Remember that we air our full morning shows first exclusively on LTN Radio, ltnonair.com, every Monday through Thursday at 8 a.m. Eastern with an encore at 10 a.m. But if you miss a day or just can't catch the show live, you can find our three full shows and our weekly main podcast by searching The Back Row Morning Show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, pretty much everywhere. Subscribe, rate five stars, and leave a review. Do it, and we'll love you forever. Make sure you check out lovethynerd.com. We've got amazing articles on all things nerdy, other podcasts and videos, and a lot more. And if you would like to directly support our mission and become a financial partner with Love Thy Nerd, even specifically with LTN Radio, please visit lovethynerd.com slash partner, and you can choose LTN Radio from the drop-down menu. Love Thy Nerd is a qualifying 501c3 nonprofit organization, and your gift is tax deductible. And make sure you're following us on all the socials. We're on the book, the twit, the gram, and the talk. Just search at the back row LTN and connect with us. Once again, I'm Radio Matt. And I'm Mo. And remember, if nobody else tells you, we promise it's true. Jesus, Jesus loves, loves you, nerd. nerd. Come on.